Please turn with me in the written word of God to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 2. And we'll begin the reading at Romans chapter 1, verse 32. And then we're going to go down to chapter 2 and verse 11. Who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are, whoever you are who judge, for whenever you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, You are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first, and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. Let's pray. Father, these are sobering words, but because they're your words, they're true words. And I pray that the Spirit of God would bring deep conviction to anyone who is outside of Christ, not to lead them to despair, but rather to drive them to Christ, our only hope. And we thank you, Father, that though you're a God of wrath, you are also a God of love, full of goodness and forbearance and patience. And we thank you that your love has expressed itself most fully in the sending of your only begotten Son to die for sinners like us and to be raised uh, because you have accepted him and you've accepted his sacrifice on our behalf. So would you open the eyes of of many a sinner to see not only the wrath of God, but the love of God in Christ Jesus. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. When we come to Romans 1, and we look at verse 16 and 17, Paul boldly declares, I'm not ashamed of the good news about Jesus Christ. I I glory in it. I'm bold about it. I'm not ashamed of it in any way, shape, or form. Why? Because it's the power of God and the salvation for everyone who believes. And then he goes on to tell us why it's the power of God and the salvation. It's because the gospel reveals something very specific. It reveals the righteousness of God. And I'm going to go ahead and skip to the end and tell you this much. The righteousness of God spoken there is not simply his attributes as God. It is his righteousness revealed in Jesus Christ. That Jesus as a man perfectly obeyed God's law. He is perfectly righteous, and it is His righteousness that is freely offered to sinners through faith in Jesus. That if you put your faith in Jesus, He'll take away all your sin, and in its place, He'll give you all His righteousness. 
so that the law of God is satisfied in the one who believes, even though we're still sinners. But having said all of that, in verses 16 and 17, in verse 18, he immediately begins to talk about God's wrath, God's anger against sin, his holy indignation against those who've transgressed his law. And he starts that in verse 18, and he doesn't stop for 64 verses. He keeps us there for a very long time because he wants us to understand the seriousness of God's wrath. And he's trying to show us something, not just that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, but that the gospel is the only power of God unto salvation. There is nothing else outside the gospel. There's no other refuge you can go to but the gospel itself. And the problem is, as sinners, we are by nature self-righteous. Self-righteousness clings to you and to me like flypaper. And it's hard to get this stubborn root out of us. As a matter of fact, have you ever thought about the fact that every other false religion, every religion made by man in one way, shape, or form, teaches that you can be reconciled to God or the gods by your own merits. It's something you do. If you'll be good enough, if you'll be righteous enough, then maybe you'll have some favor in the sight of this deity or deities that you're trying to appease. All of them are works-based in their orientation, except one. And that one is this one, the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ, which says it's not what you've done, it's what Christ has done. That is the basis of our salvation. So what's Paul doing? Paul is calling, as it were, witnesses to the witness stand against us. And we've completed the discovery of one of those witnesses. The first witness he calls to the stand is God's creation. God's existence and even something of his nature, his attributes, is revealed in creation. And get this, it's what's called natural theology. There is nothing wrong with the content of natural theology. That is, what God has revealed is absolutely true. The problem is with the way sinners interpret that. They see it, they know what it says, and yet what do they do? They suppress it. They hold it down because if I acknowledge the existence of God, then I'm accountable to him, and I don't like that. So man has a moral problem, so he holds down, he denies the undeniable. He suppresses the insuppressible. He resists the irresistible. But he does so contrary to reason. And how does he do that? Well, the biggest thing he does is he ceases to give God praise. He doesn't give him the worship due his name. He doesn't thank him. He doesn't serve him as he knows he should. Instead, he substitutes that God for a different God, a God of his own making. A God who looks more like a creature than the creator and worships those things. And so God gives men over to all kinds of things because they love sin rather than loving God. Well, Paul's not done yet, though. And you may ask yourself, wait a minute, he's already said that this first witness by itself is sufficient to condemn us to an eternity in hell, but he's got two more witnesses to call. In verses 12 to 16 of chapter 2, he's going to call the witness of your own conscience and say your conscience has the work of God's law written upon it because you're made in God's image, and therefore you know right from wrong. Your heart knows that there is moral right and moral wrong. There's a moral compass inside of all of us, and yet we don't live according to that moral compass. Verses 17 to 24, he's going to deal with the fact of God's commandment that the Jews had God's law written in, the, in their own Hebrew language, and yet they still didn't obey it. And they were guiltier than anybody because they didn't just have two witnesses against them. 
They had three witnesses against them. Even so it is in the modern church, isn't it? We have the Word of God. We may be members of a church. We may have been baptized, but that in itself does not mean necessarily that you're truly one of God's people. As, as uh, George Whitfield said to a group of congregate, congregates in front of him that must have shocked him, he said, you're all baptized pagans. Well, it's entirely possible, isn't it? Well, why is Paul going on to call two more witnesses to the stand? It comes down to the fact that we are so self-righteous that it takes a lot of doing to be convinced that really we're guilty before God. By nature, our tendency is to say, yes, God's judgment is justly against the world out there. But when it comes to me, that's a different thing. I'm a little bit better than the next person. God's anger isn't directed towards me. In other words, thank you, God, that I'm not like other men, tends to be our mentality. And so Paul is taking the time out of love for our souls to dislodge all of that. But before he gets there, before he starts calling these next two witnesses to the stand, do you know what he does in the passage I've just read to you? He puts you on the stand. He puts you on the stand and begins interrogating you. It sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? What's the root word of interrogate? Interrogative is to ask a question. He begins probing your conscience with a number of questions and saying, no, it's not just that the world out there is guilty. You're guilty. You're guilty. And if you're outside of Christ, you are under the wrath of God right now. And that's what he's going to tell us. So I want to set this before you under two headings. The first thing we see in verses 1 through 4 is you are a depraved sinner who is worthy of damnation. Secondly, in verses 5 through 11, if you do not repent of your sins, a dreadful future awaits you. Let's consider those two things together. First of all, you are a depraved sinner who is deserving of condemnation. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore... Whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, you should ask what it's there for. Why is it there? It's connecting it to the, 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 the logic of the chapter before. It's connecting it to chapter 1. In other words, you know the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, but not only do you do the same, you approve of those who practice them. And therefore, you are excusable. Now, there's something I want you to notice about chapter 2 that's not evident in our English language. In English, when you say you, it can mean you singular or it can mean you plural. Now, in the South, we have a way to add to that. If you want to say you plural, you say y'all, right? But in the Bible, uh, in the original Hebrew, the original Greek, there were specific words for you singular and you plural. And it's not as evident unless you're using like the, new, the old King James or, or the American Standard of 1901. But when you see thee, thou, thy, and thine, that's you singular. When you see you and ye and yourselves, that's you plural. Well, in chapter 1 of Romans, every time you see the word you, it's you plural. But suddenly in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul switches and almost every single occurrence of the word you in chapter 2, except for one of them, is you singular. As a matter of fact, he uses the term you singular 30 times. 30 times. Now, I emphasize that for a reason. What Paul is doing is he's put you on the witness stand now, and he's looking at you eyeball to eyeball. He's saying, I'm talking to you, not the person behind you or in front of you or to the left or to the right. I'm talking to you. 
I'm looking you right in the eyes and I'm confronting you and saying, this is you. This isn't the outside world. This is you. This is who you are. And he wants us to understand that. So he's being very confrontational. He's getting in our space. As one person said, he's gone from preaching to meddling. And he's meddling with our stuff. He's getting into our business and saying, you need to understand this is you I'm talking about. So with that in mind, let's consider what he's saying here. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man. You have no argument. You have no excuse whatsoever for your sin. You are caught dead to rights. This is you. You see, we believe in a doctrine called the total depravity of man, right? We're Calvinists, so we good Calvinists, good Reformed people, we believe in total depravity. But you need to understand something. Total depravity isn't a nice, neat, tidy little doctrine that we talk about and we talk, write in our systematic theology books and put it upon our shelf and let it collect dust and say, that's nice, we believe that. Total depravity is a living, breathing reality that's operating under the roof of your home. Your parents are going, yes, that's right. <laughs> but it's not just your children, it's, it's you. It's looking back at you when you look in the mirror in the morning. It's there with you when you're sipping your coffee. It's there when you're eating your meals. It's there when you're in the workplace. It's there when you're doing your work around the house. It's, you know, it's with you everywhere you go. It is a reality that affects all of life because we are all sinners. And outside of Christ, we're totally depraved sinners, which doesn't mean you're as bad as you can be, but that every part of you is affected by your sin, the way you think, the way you feel, all of it, the way you act, the way you speak, all of it is affected by your sinfulness and by your fallenness. And so he says, therefore, you're an excusable old man. Notice what he says, whoever you are, doesn't matter who your daddy is, doesn't matter what background you're from, doesn't matter what your skin color is, or whether you're poor, or whether you're rich, or whether you're heavy, or whether you're thin, or whatever you are, no matter who you are, you are guilty, is what he says here. And notice, he says, you are guilty who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. Isn't it interesting that we're so hard on other people, sometimes we're hardest on other people on the places that we ourselves are the weakest? And the Bible has a word for that. It's called hypocrisy. That we want to get the speck out of our brother's eye, but we can't see the log sticking out of our own. we got a plank sticking out of our own eye. Get the plank out of your own eye first, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck out of someone else's eye. But we're so, we want to be so hard on everybody else. We want everybody to be so gentle on us. Have you ever seen in your own heart the propensity that you want justice for everyone who wrongs you, but then you want mercy for you? And that shows our sinfulness, doesn't it? And that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, you condemn everybody else and say, yes, they're wicked, but you don't see your own wickedness. You can see your eagle-eyed clarity about everybody else's sin and what they deserve, but you're blind as a bat when it comes to yourself. In other words, what he's saying in verse 1 is your judgment can't be trusted because you think you're better than you really are. You've heard me say it so many times, as bad as you let yourself think you are, you're probably worse. And, I'm, and that's true. It's true of me because our heart by nature is so self-righteous that we don't let ourselves think about what we really are. And it's a mercy of God that he hasn't shown me every bit of sin that's in my heart yet. Because if God just really showed me 
open my eyes and let me see every bit of sin that's in me, I'm pretty sure I'd have a coronary and die right now and go straight to glory. Because if I saw really how sinful I am, I would be overwhelmed. The little bit that I do see is enough to overwhelm me. And yet God is merciful. He doesn't show me everything at once. He doesn't show you everything at once either. But we tend to judge other people in ways that simply are not right. But then notice verse 2. Here's the contrast. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. In other words, God's justice, God's judgment, His discernment is perfect. It's unbiased. It's impartial. It's absolutely according to truth. And He sees the guilt. And he judges as a righteous judge. That's why Psalm chapter 7, verse 11 says, God is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked every day. Why? Because he's just. God doesn't punish sinners because God's mean. God punishes sinners because God is just, and he's holy. His nature requires him to punish sinners. The only way he could not punish sinners and not punish sin is to cease being God. To cease being himself, and that's something God can never do. But his nature requires it. But then notice this, verse 3, he begins the interrogation. Verses 3 and 4, he's asking questions of us, and he's really not expecting an answer because they're rhetorical questions. You already know what the answer is. He says, and do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you, singular, will escape the judgment of God? He's, pointing a, he's confronting you and saying, do you really think you're innocent? Do you really think you'll escape God's wrath? Verse 4, Or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? That's an amazing question. And it's an amazing statement he's making here. Notice he speaks of three of God's perfections. Do you despise his goodness? That's the first one. Secondly, his forbearance. And third, his long-suffering. What are those things? What is God's goodness? It's his moral excellence. His moral excellence. God has, for the moment, suspended the execution of wrath. He hasn't poured his wrath out upon you yet. Why? Because you're good? No. Because he's good. His goodness has withheld wrath from you for the moment. Secondly is his forbearance. That means his self-restraint, as it were. To hold back is what this word means. In other words, the wrath of God is like this mighty flood that's building in its intensity, and it's about to be poured out upon you, but God, with his omnipotent power, is suspending that, holding it back, as it were, saying to you, flee from the wrath that is to come. Crying out to you, Seek mercy while mercy may be found because the day is going to come when it's going to be too late. But right now, he's holding it back. And that brings us to the third thing, his long-suffering, his patience with sinners. Because he's patient with you, that's why you're not in hell right now. But his patience will come to an end if you do not repent. You know what this is telling us? You get what's being said here? The same God whom you have offended, the same God whose wrath burns against sinners, is a God who loves sinners more than sinners love themselves. He's a God of love. 
who desires that sinners would repent and believe on Jesus Christ. And that is what it's saying here. Turn with me to Luke chapter 6. It wasn't very long ago I was reading through the book of Luke in my personal Bible reading. As familiar as I am with these verses, it hit me with fresh power, with fresh force. You're very familiar with them. I alluded to it when I was talking about the public scripture reading this morning. Luke chapter 6, verse 27. Jesus says this, But I say to you to hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer him the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. Now, the thing we need to understand here, Jesus isn't making a request. He's giving us a commandment. He doesn't say, "Pray, love your enemies when you have warm, fuzzy feelings in your heart for them. If you wait till then, you will never pray for them. Because it's not about what you feel, it's about what you do. You pray for them because I'm commanding you to. You return good for them because I'm commanding you to. Do it out of duty and trust the Lord that the feelings will come later. C.S. Lewis once said, if you don't love somebody, act like you love them and the feelings will eventually come. And that's what Jesus is saying here. But the astonishing thing is the reason he gives for it. Why are you supposed to be kind to your enemy? Why are you supposed to return good for evil? He tells us in verses 35 and 36, and it's really astonishing. But love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great. Now listen to what he says next. And you will be sons of the Most High. Okay. And what he's about to say is so jaw-dropping, because remember, this is the thrice holy God whom the seraphim have to cover their face and have to cover their feet in his presence. That's who they're talking about, this great God of justice. You'll be sons of the Most High. Why? For he is kind to whom? The unthankful and the evil. You will prove yourself to be sons of God because you're proving that the acorn hasn't fallen far from the tree. When you show kindness and you love your enemy, you're being like God because he loves his enemies. And he's kind to people who are ungrateful. And he's kind to people who are wicked and vile and evil. Therefore, he says, be merciful just as your father also is merciful. Does that not overwhelm you? That God loves his enemies. That God loves people who despise his law. That God loves people who've offended him. This is the God of love. And Paul says, this God whose wrath burns against humanity has suspended his wrath and is holding it back so that men may repent and believe on Jesus. His kindness leads you to repentance, is what he's saying. 
You know, the reality is God's wrath in it by itself will not make anybody come to Jesus. It will show you your need for Jesus, but it's not the thing that will win you. You know what will win you? His love. His love demonstrated in Christ. His love shed abroad for sinners. The mercy he has shown to you is meant to draw you to Christ. And that's what Paul's saying here. But men, what do they do? They despise his goodness. They despise his forbearance. They despise his long-suffering. In the text, how does someone despise those things? They despise them by not repenting of their sin. Their failure to repent is taking for granted the kindness God has shown. It's saying to his love, it doesn't matter to me. You see, the, the, the sinner's way of looking at things is, my life's been pretty good. I, I have some prosperity, some decent health. Got friends and, some, and, and, and I'm doing pretty good. I mean, there's days that are hard, but on the whole, things are going well with me. And he interprets that as God's not angry with me. Look at all this that I have in abundance. God's always been nice to me and it's going to just stay that way for the rest of my days. Instead of understanding that, that, no, this is not that God has blessed you in the sense of doing something for your merits to say, well, okay, I'm going to be nice to you because you've been a good guy or a good woman. It is the goodness of God himself that has restrained his wrath from being poured out upon you, and you're presuming upon borrowed time. But the way to not take for granted the forbearance of God is to repent. What is repentance? Let me just give it to you briefly. It starts by being broken over your sin, by having a broken and contrite heart. Grieved, not that you got caught for your sin, grieved that you've offended a holy God, that you have transgressed His ways and recognizing you deserve damnation. But that in itself, can someone have that kind of heart, that kind of sorrow in their heart, and yet not be repentant? Well, they can. Because that's not all repentance is. It begins there, it doesn't end there. It moves you next in the next place to confess your sin. To be transparent about sin. To be honest about sin with God. Um, Instead of excusing sin, covering up sin, you admit it. And you acknowledge your responsibility, you acknowledge your guilt. But here's a question. Is confessing your sin repentance? And the answer is no, it's not either. It's a part of repentance, but it's not the whole. In other words, is it possible to confess sin and yet not repent of sin? It is. Uh, Roman, people, Roman Catholics go to confessional every week. Father, I have sinned. It's been three weeks since my last confession. Yada, yada, yada. And you start saying all the stuff and you get absolution and you walk away and go live in the same sin again, right? Until your next confession. No, what does the Bible say in Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen? He who covers his transgressions will not prosper, but whoever confesses and, do you remember, forsakes them will find mercy. It's not just confessing sin, it's forsaking sin. It's turning away from sin, it's forsaking it. You know, over the years at different times, I've had to counsel people and say, all right, here's, here, here's some things that might help you deal with this sin. And then... They come back confessing the same sin, and you give them the same counsel again. And they come back confessing the same sin, and you give them the same counsel again. And after a while, you finally have to look at them and say, you keep coming to me, asking me for counsel, and yet you're never taking the counsel I give you. 
The question is, do you want to have victory over sin or do you just want to wallow in it? Because you're not forsaking it. I'm not saying you can snap your fingers and make it all go away. I I wish we could. But are you fighting with it? Not just acknowledging and being transparent that you've sinned, but forsaking it, taking practical steps to say, no more. I don't want to walk in this anymore. That's what repenting is. It's turning from your sin and turning towards God and beginning to put off unrighteousness and put on holiness. That process that we go through in sanctification. Well, otherwise... You're despising the riches of his goodness. You're taking it for granted. So here's the first thing then. You are a depraved sinner who deserves eternal condemnation. And I want you to understand, when I say you, I'm also talking about me. I'm a depraved sinner who also deserves condemnation. If God gave me what I deserve, I would be in hell right this moment. The fact that I'm a pastor doesn't make me immune to the fact that I'm a great sinner who deserves God's wrath. And in the second place... If you do not repent of your sins, eternal damnation awaits you in your future. Look at verse 5. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, that's the opposite of having a broken and contrite heart, isn't it? In accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, your unrepentant heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. What's it mean you're treasuring it up? It's like putting money in an interest-bearing account. And interest begins to accrue and add to, that, uh, to what you've put in there. In other words, it's not that God's wrath is static. God doesn't change in any way, shape, or form. But the, the, the intensity of the punishment that you deserve is building up because you've been given great light And yet you're sinning against that light. And as you do so, the intensity of that judgment is building up in its intensity. Do you realize that in hell, not everybody's going to be punished exactly equal? There are some sins that will be punished worse. Remember what Jesus said? It will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you in the day of judgment. doesn't mean it's going to be tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah. They're going to be judged as well. But their, their sentence will be lighter than yours is because you were given greater light than they were. And you sinned against greater light, and therefore you're more responsible than they are. And because of that, your punishment will be that much worse. That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying that if you continue to persist with a hard heart and not repent, you are treasuring up that wrath. The wrath of God is building against you. In other words, seek the Lord while he may be found before it's too late, is what he's saying here. He goes on to describe what this is going to be like. He says in verse 6, "...who will render to each one according to his deeds," that is, according to his works, "...eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality." Look at verse 10 but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You know, you think to yourself, okay, is he saying then that we're saved by our own obedience to the law? It sure sounds like it, right? Well, no, that's not what he's saying. You say, how do you know that? Look at chapter 3, verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. What's he saying here in chapter 2? He's saying that if a man or a woman could perfectly obey God's law from the time they were born to the time they died, 
then that person could, be, could enter into heaven by their own works. Now, qualification there. If you die, it's because you're a sinner. You wouldn't die if you didn't sin. As a matter of fact, Jesus would have never died as a man had he not voluntarily laid his life down. Why? Because he didn't sin. He had no sin against him. He never would have died had he not voluntarily laid his life down in obedience to what God the Father had commanded. The point is, though, in order to keep to, to enter into life by your own works, you have to, from cradle to grave, keep God's law perfectly. You see, in the sinner's mind, the idea is this. I've been bad, but I'll start being mighty good now. And I'll reform my life, and I'll start adding some good works to everything. And by doing so, my good works will start outweighing my bad works, and God will kind of grade by the curve in the day of judgment and let me in based upon my good deeds. No, no, no. You don't understand what the law requires if that's what you think. The law requires that every single intention of your heart has been absolutely righteous and pure without exception your entire life. It requires that every thought you've ever entertained in your mind has been pure and holy and good and just and right. That every word you've ever spoken has been perfect. That every action you've ever committed has been in obedience to God's word and in conformity to his law. Is there a single person in this room who qualifies by that, by that requirement? And the answer, of course, is no. That's what Paul is saying. That's the point he's making. Is that if you try to be saved by your works, you will most surely be damned. Because we have broken God's law, not just once or twice. How many times do you think you've broken God's law? Do you think you can even remember? Can you count them all? And yet the Bible says if you've broken the law in just one point, you've broken the whole of the law. So we are condemned outside of Christ. And notice what will be poured out upon us, verse 8. For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, for there's no partiality with God. In other words, it doesn't matter if you're a religious Jew. It doesn't matter if you're a pagan Gentile. Without partiality, all are guilty before God. And therefore, all will serve a just condemnation. I want to make two applications from the text. I know that these things are heavy. But this is the Word of God. My job is to be a herald, a messenger, to tell you faithfully what God says. Because at the end of the day, it's for the good of your soul, not for your harm. These things God shows you out of mercy. There's a day of wrath coming, flee from it, because there is a way out. So the first thing I want to say, I want to address those of you who do not know the Lord. I'm sure you're all familiar with the fact that a man named Jonathan Edwards preached a famous sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Let me read to you a portion of that, of that sermon. He says this, Wicked and unbelieving people are, even now, the objects of the very same anger and wrath of God that are revealed in the torments of hell. The reason they are not thrown down into hell now is that the sovereign God is not that the sovereign God is not angry with them, as he is with many miserable people who are already tormented in hell and bearing his fierce wrath. No, God is much angrier with unbelievers who are still here on the earth, and very likely with many now in this congregation, than he is with many of those now who are in the flames of hell. 
So the reason why God has not loosened his hand and cut them off is not that he's unaware of their wickedness or tolerates it. God is not like them, though they imagine him to be. The wrath of God is burning against them. Their damnation is not sleeping. The pit is prepared. The fire is already made. The furnace is hot and ready to receive them. The flames even now rage and glow. The shiny sword is sharpened and held over them. The pit has opened its mouth under them. And then he says this, The bow of God's wrath is bent and straining. The arrow is already set on the string, and justice aims it directly at your heart. It is nothing but the mere pleasure of God, an angry God, who is not restrained by any promise or obligation that keeps that arrow from being drunk with your blood. This means that all of you whose hearts have never been changed by the power of the Holy Spirit, and who've never been born again and made new creatures, raised from being dead in sin to a new light and life, all of you are in the hands of an angry God. Isn't he saying exactly what the Holy Spirit is saying through Paul? Let me give you some good news. Here's the good news. Listen carefully. You have to be saved by works. The law has to be upheld. Justice must be satisfied. The problem is, can you do that? You cannot. You cannot. Paul has put you on the witness stand this morning. He's interrogated you. He's probed your conscience. More importantly, not Paul, the Spirit of God has done so. He's probed your conscience. He's said you're guilty. You are worthy of damnation. You have witnesses against you, three of them. Creation and conscience and commandment. You know, if you're in a court of law and you're being condemned by all these witnesses, you need something. You know what you need? You need, you need a defense lawyer. You need somebody who's going to stand up and be your advocate before the judge. And that is exactly what God sent His Son Jesus to be. The advocate of sinners. The friend of sinners. The protector and defender of sinners. Jesus came and He kept the law in our place. He fulfilled its every precept, its every truth. From cradle to grave, He perfectly obeyed the law of God from the heart. Never thought a lustful thought about a woman. Never said any word that was out of place. Never did anything displeasing to the Father. In fact, He boldly said, I always do those things that are pleasing to my Father. Who of you can stand up and say that even for one minute? I can't even go a minute with doing something that everything is pleasing to the Father. But Jesus could say boldly, even to his own his, his worst enemies who hated his guts, which one of you accuses me of sin? Not one of them could say a word. That's the kind of holiness and the kind of life that he lived. He fulfilled the law where we failed. And here's what I want you to get. He didn't cheat, as it were, and fall back on his deity. And say, by the power of my own deity, my nature, I'm going to keep God's law. No, as a man, he depended upon the Father to give him fresh supplies of the Holy Spirit so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, as a man, he obeyed God's law. When we talk about the righteousness in the gospel, that's what we're talking about. Jesus as a man fulfilling the law that we have broken. But there's still a problem. He's fulfilled the precepts of the law, but what about the penalties? Because the law cries out for your blood. It says vengeance must be exacted. 
And Jesus, when he voluntarily died upon the cross, he wasn't dying for crimes he had committed. He wasn't being punished for sins he had done. Rather, he was dying in the place of others. He was dying as a substitute. Hold your place in Romans. Turn back to Isaiah 53. I know you're familiar with this text, but listen again to it. Listen to what it says. It's talking about Jesus. Isaiah 53, verses 4, 5, and 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. And listen to verse 6. Some of the most glorious news you'll ever hear. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. That is the best news you're ever going to hear in your entire life. I promise you for all time and eternity, there's no better news. Jesus died for sinners. Jesus suffered under the wrath of God in the place of sinners. Justice must be upheld. But Jesus has allowed that justice to be poured out upon him. And he died in our place. Did God the Father accept that sacrifice in the place of sinners? He did. How do you know? How do you know? Tell me. He raised him from the dead. He's risen. And that tells you God's accepted him. And that means he's alive right now. And he's able to save you right now. And just as willing as he is able. God loves sinners more than sinners love themselves. I love myself a whole lot. I spent 53 years trying to get over it. God loves me more. He loves you infinitely more than I do. It's not just He loves you a little bit more, infinitely more. He loves sinners. He loves forgiving sinners. He loves to show mercy to sinners. It's His joy to do so. It's His delight to do so. He loves to do so. What's he say? I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, he says in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11. So come, turn, and live. Why should you perish? Why should you die? I'm offering it freely to you. Come to me, and I'll forgive you. I'll give you righteousness for free. Why on earth would anyone turn down that offer? Flee to Christ. He's able and willing to receive sinners to himself. And then what will he pour out upon you on the day of judgment? Glory and peace and rewards. Why? Because of what he's done. I said to you, I wasn't kidding, you have to be saved by works. It's just your works can't do it. It's his works. It's his works, what he has done. Somebody has said that religion says do and Christianity says done. And that's the truth. It's finished. It's paid in full. Jesus has made a full atonement for sinners. And it doesn't say forgive you for 98% of your sins, but the other 2%, you've got to figure out something else. All of your sin. All of your sin. That is what God forgives when you come to Jesus. So repent of your sins and put your faith in Him. Stop trusting your own righteousness. Trust Him alone for salvation that only He can give. And for you who are my brothers and sisters in Christ, you say, well, this has been a strongly evangelistic message. What does it have for you today? Well, it has a whole lot for you today because you and I need to never forget what we've been saved from. It's easy to do, isn't it? It's easy to start taking things for granted. There was an old country boy, uh, preacher boy back in Bible college days. His name was Jerry Devaney. 
And he was as redneck as they come. But when he would pray, I love what he would say. He'd say, he says, Lord, in such and such a year, you save me, and I've never gotten over it. I've never gotten over it. And you know, the reality is you and I should never get over it. We need to remember the joy that we have been saved from our sin. We've been saved from ourselves. We have been saved from the wrath that is to come through what God has done. Because as we meditate upon that, the more you meditate upon his love for you, what happens to your love for him? It grows greater. We love him because he first loved us. And the more you apprehend of his love for you, the more your love for him grows, the more holy affections grow up in your heart. Isaac Watts nailed it when he said, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. What do you owe to God for what he's done for you in Jesus? Everything. Everything. And our entire life of discipleship is a one big thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you that you've not given me what I deserve. Instead, you've given me what I don't deserve. In your son, Jesus Christ. So let's never lose the wonder of what God has done. The marvel that we are his elect. Why did he choose me? He could have passed right over my name and he would have been just to do so. But in mercy, he chose me. And if you're in Christ, in mercy, he chose you. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your goodness to us and your kindness. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for Jesus dying for sinners. I do pray again, Lord, for anyone here who doesn't know the Lord, please grant them grace that before this day is over, they will know you and enter into a reconciled relationship with you through your son, Jesus. And for us who do know you, Lord, help us never to lose the wonder of it. Help us to marvel that you have saved us and help us to love you because of the, redemp- the price paid for our redemption. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.